0: Good morning. Well, we're glad to be back. Um, somebody probably didn't know we were gone, but that's okay. Um, for the two people that didn't know we were gone, uh, we're, we are glad to be back. We were gone for two weeks and had the privilege to see, we went to Lexington, Kentucky from here to see my parents and my daughter who's in University of Kentucky, from there to Lynchburg, Virginia to see my daughter who's finishing her master's and running track at Liberty University, from there to Orlando to see my son who's married and finishing his undergrad at Reformation Bible College, from there down to visit some friends in Bonita Springs, back to Jacksonville, Florida to see our daughter run in her conference meet, and uh, then to Tallahassee that night, and then last Sunday drove 13 and a half hours to come back home somewhere between 3,600 and 4,000 miles. We just got new tires put on the van right before we left. Um, we took it in for a tire rotation this week. <clears throat> so that, I think that was probably like a record for big old tires. Like, man, you, you just put new tires on this thing. You've already worn out. So we're glad to be back. But we didn't travel near as far at, um, as Brian and Regina did, who went to Ireland for the few weeks, so if you, maybe we missed him up here too, and they, they traveled a lot farther, not in a car as much, but obviously in a plane, and their time there, so we're glad that they're back as well, and we're glad you're here this morning as we continue our studies, uh, and of course Jay's traveling around the world, um, I never can keep up with him, he, he I have to go look at my text to keep up with him, he'll text me, I'm going to be here, here, and here, and I'm, I'm still trying to find all those places on the map, so places I have not been yet, but uh, we are continuing our series in this uh, uh, through first and second Timothy. Now we're in Second Timothy entitled Be Strong in Grace. And this is part fifty-one. If you if you're counting, just in case you're counting, it's part fifty-one. Motivations for suffering for the gospel is the title this morning. Motivations for suffering for the gospel. And I, I pray that if you have a copy of God's word with you, whether it's physical or in digital, that you would take that out now, turn it to 2 Timothy chapter 2 as we continue looking at that. It's it's just, I know I'm going to have, one day I'm going to do this, I'm just going to warn you, one day I'm going to do this, we're going to have no PowerPoint. And here's why. Because I love to see people handling their own copy of God's Word and know, begin to know where to find. I know some of you are new, with, new and, and, and using your Bibles, and, and, you're, and it's the only way you can learn is to take them out and begin to handle them. And, and I, I want us to wear out Bibles. You've probably heard this before. A Bible that's worn out probably belongs to someone who's not. You know, and there's some truth to that. We need to wear out God's Word. We be in it and just understand it and seek to know his heart through his Word and have our own copy. And if you don't have a, a copy of God's Word, let us know. We'll get you one. All right? we, we, we are blessed to have many copies of God's Word. So I just encourage you if you've got it. You can look around the screen too. Man, I love to have Here's what I love to see. He, see. I love to say, hey, look at, look at verse 8, and I see this, the top of people's heads. Now, some of you had more up there than others, but I love to see the top of people's heads because I know they're looking. I'm not the authority. Jay's not the authority. Chad or Jason or Dan or our elders up here ever teaching, they're not the authority. God's word is the authority. So I want us to be looking in God's word together. I just love that. I love to, I love to hear this. You don't hear this much anymore. You, hear, you can't hear this when you do that. But I love to hear that. I love to hear the pages turn, too. I love that. So just, just humor me a little bit, okay, um, with that. But it turned there if you're not there already. But before we begin to look at those um, verses, uh, verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2 today, we're going to kind of take a little time to set things in context and review from the last couple of weeks. Jay was in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 7, and, and I just got to tell you I'm a little jealous he got to teach that, those verses. Uh, verses 1 through 7, really they're, they're, th- those verses there are some of the most impactful verses in my life. They've shaped my life, those verses have. And so I was a little bit jealous. We trust the sovereignty of God. These things change. Sometimes Jay's got to be out. When I, he didn't know he was going to be out. I have to be out or whatever. And then we, we schedule it. And I think I was originally scheduled to have those verses. I was so fired up, and then it didn't come out that way, all right? So, but that's okay. We'll trust God with that. But if you were here, um, you understand how impactful they are and can be. And we saw in in the last two weeks working through those verses, Paul employs Timothy to take these things that Paul had taught him, uh, of which the gospel permeated throughout all of that, and pass it on to others who would be able to pass it on to others who would pass it on to others, and who would pass it on to others. And my, and my notes say this, dot, dot, dot. It just keeps going. It, it, it's the practical outworking of Jesus' great commission to make disciples of all the nations. That's what this is about. Uh, I, I'm so thankful that I grew up in a family, in a local church, uh, where this happened in my life. Uh, outside of my, my parents, who did a great job with this, I could easily, easily, Named 20 people in my church that I grew up in, um, from my, when I was about three and a half years old till I was uh, graduate high school. Name at least 20, and I didn't want to start. I, I actually began to list them out. And I said, "Well, I'm going to leave somebody out. At least 20 people by name that did this in my life." I'll I met Miss Goolsby, my first ga- grade Sunday school teacher. I remember Miss Go- Goolsby. She seemed like she was like 133 at the time. And she, I mean, but man, she was fired up about Jesus and fired about God's word, and she was investing in those first graders. She was there a long time. Miss Goolsby. I mean, I'm getting pretty old, and I've been hitting the head a lot, and I can still remember Miss Goolsby because she did this to me. She entrusted me with God's word. And I could do the same for my college years. I could name at least 20 people who did this for me. And after a brief, very brief stint in the NFL for 15 weeks with the Atlanta Falcons in the summer of 91, I got, I got an injury, and then I rehabbed for about a year, wanted to play. didn't work out to get to play anymore. I moved to Denton, Texas to work, to, to work my master's and also uh, to get involved in a really good church there where some of my friends were at, and I knew the pastor. His name was uh, Tom Nelson, and the church is called Denton Bible Church in Denton, Texas. <clears throat> and they took this whole entrusting the gospel to faithful people who would entrust to faithful people. They took this really seriously, and here's how I know. In my first week there, I moved to Denton, Texas. I only knew a couple people, and we were, you know, seeing people in the evening, and they were introducing me to people. The, the first five days, maybe, or for the first week I was there, at least five people asked me this question. Who are you meeting with? Who are you meeting with? And I'm like, who are you meeting with? Man, who are you meeting with? I haven't met a girl yet, so I haven't met and meeting with her. I mean, I, what, and I got on what they're talking about, and I, I just made determined, the next time somebody asked me, who are you meeting with? I was gonna have an answer. And I went to find people to meet with. I began meeting with a guy named Jack Man- Manis, who's one of the elders of the church. Every Wednesday morning at 5.30 in the morning, he said, show up and I'll, I'll meet with you. So I met with Jack. And then I began to meet one-on-one with five different college guys. So when I was working my masters, and I was a little bit older master student, but because of my time still playing this crazy little game I played, but um, I began to invest in five college guys. Met with them one-on-one every single week, and then we meet once an um, evening together, all together. So, so I, I had an answer for this, this, this who you're meeting with. I, I was meeting with people, and I was entrusting them with God's, I was being entrusted with God's word, and then I was entrusting others with God's word, and I expected them to do the same thing. This was the culture of this church. It was awesome. And, and uh, so that leads me to the question, who are you meeting with? Who are you meeting with? Who who is investing God's word into you? And who are you investing God's word in? Because that's the pattern here. This this is the pattern of the whole New Testament. It was Jesus' plan. There's a great book called The Master Plan of Evangelism. You ought to read it. It's an oldie but a goodie. And it just lays out this is exactly what happens. You give it to this person, they give it to the next person. We saw that through these first seven verses. And remember, it's about making disciples, not just sharing the gospel, That's the beginning of making disciples, and this happens life on life. It doesn't just—it's not just about passing on information. Let me be very clear about this. It's not just about passing on information. It's about transformation, not just information, but transformation. And we live in a world where we have more access to information than any time in the history of our world. We have more access to information. And some of that information in the way of teaching God's word, it's really good. I mean, there's really good stuff out there. There's some good books, YouTube, websites, podcasts, radio programs. It's just really good stuff. However, just taking in that information or giving out information is not discipleship. Let me say it again. Just giving out information or taking information is not discipleship. Yes, there's information that's exchanged, no doubt. But that's not what it's all about, just information. It's not what Jesus and Paul had in mind. What Jesus and Paul had in mind here in 2 Timothy 2 was a relationship with real people. Sitting down, skin on skin, right there in front of you. One of the things, we were talking about this last night, had some people over, one of the things that the pandemic didn't cause, it revealed that we don't have good relationships. It did. Some people don't even come back because they can just watch it on TV, right? Right? That's not what God had in mind. I'm thankful we have TV. I'm thankful we can do that. Sometimes we need that. But that's not what it's all about, just watching and listening. It's about spending time. It's exchanging. It's modeling. It's asking questions. It's encouraging. It's challenging. It's mourning. It's celebrating together with real people that you know. That can't happen if you're just watching stuff on the Internet. Watching stuff on TV or listening to stuff on the radio, it's, that, that, that's, just, that's not what discipleship is all about. See, there's this principle called maul. All right? We, we want to maul people. Not like a bear. It's a little different. M-A-W-L. We want to model. We want to assist. We want to watch. And we want to launch. That's what we want to do with people. We want to model, and then something that's going to be teaching, it's going to be showing and bringing people along. Uh, uh, The the pastor I met, uh, I mentioned earlier didn't Bible Church, Tommy Nelson, used to speak all over the country, and he would always take somebody with him, some young dude with him, so he could spend time with him. So this guy could watch what Tommy did behind the scenes and just watch his life. He first started having eight college guys live in his house, and then when his wife started having children, Uh, they moved out, (laughs) okay? But then he started his whole program for college guys, but he would take these guys with him so they could watch. He would model, assist, watch, and then launch. That's what we're all to be be doing. That's the discipleship principle. That's what Timothy is talking about, what Jesus meant with a great commission. Well, last week, Jay uh, talked about what could happen if we took seriously this charge to entrust God's word into others who would do the same. He did this first by looking at the book of Acts, looking how Paul entrusted uh, the truth to others and the other people would entrust the truth to others, and we saw this. Jesus entrusted the truth to Paul. Paul entrusted the truth, remember, to Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla to Apollos. Apollos entrusted to others in Achaia, etc., and on and on and on, all the way to us. Jay also pointed out that, that in 18 years after Paul entrusted the truth to Aquila and, and, and Priscilla, they were still faithfully doing the same thing at the end of Paul's life. And in fact, Paul said that they had risked their lives for Paul. And when we take this seriously, it can, be, it can mean there's going to be difficult times ahead. Now, we live in a country, and, and praise God, we live in the United States of America. And just in case you want to complain about our country, I've I got a few I'd like to send you to. And you'll come back, and you'll be a lot more appreciative. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm just being honest. You know, our country's not perfect. We know that. But we live in an amazing country, and we have the freedom to go around, and we get a chance to entrust God's word to people without somebody shooting us. And it might come a day. And sometimes I, 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 I wish maybe not shooting us, but, I mean, there would be a lot more persecution because it would really it'd sharpen us a little bit. The fire would kind of strengthen us a little bit. All right, but we live in a country we get to do so. We don't get to have some of the suffering that other people around the world, but there can be some suffering. So understand, if you're going to be committed to this whole discipleship-making process, which we're called to do, all of us, not just special people, but all of us are called to do, there may be some suffering that comes along with that. In fact, there will be suffering. In fact, we're going to learn later in the next chapter, all those who choose to live the godly lives will, not might be, will be persecuted. It's, just, it's a promise. Those are the promises we don't like in the Bible, Right? But that's a promise. And uh, Paul points this idea about suffering. Uh, Paul suffered. Akula and Priscilla suffered. We saw Jay pointed out that Timothy was in jail. He went to jail. See, this is the end of the book of Hebrews for the gospel. He was willing to suffer. And and, and he points this out all through 2 Timothy. Jay then took us to verses 3 through 7 of 2 Timothy 2 and, and pointed out that although Paul was suffering, listen, his focus was not on the suffering. I love that. His focus wasn't on the suffering. You know, I pointed that out earlier. He brought it up to point out the rewards that came through the suffering. Eternal and temporal rewards. But Paul then highlights three incentives or motivations for Timothy to dive in and take the risk of making disciples who would make disciples. It'll be a risk. There's also pain and suffering comes this way. When you invest your life into someone, and then later on you just found out they punted. They walked away, and that's happened to me, and it breaks my heart. But you know what? I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep investing into other people who invest in other people and trust God with the results. It can be suffering that way as well. But, but, so, but Paul wants to encourage Timothy and say, hey, look at the, the rewards that come. And he uses these illustrations: a the soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. And I'll just throw this up here again to you real, for us real quick. 2 Timothy 2, 4 through 6, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. And here's the reward. Now, there's the soldier part. That's tough. If you've ever been a soldier, that we watch our soldiers. I love watching things like on the Navy SEALs. Those guys are crazy. and I'm glad they're on our side. I mean, but it's tough. It's tough. But there's a reward, right? That they may please the one who enlisted them. There's a reward. And then it says if someone likewise competes as an athlete, he is not crowned as a victory unless he competes according to the rules. They compete according to rules, and then there's a reward. And I was an athlete, past tense. And I know how hard it is to train and compete as an athlete and play according to the rules, but there, there was a reward to that with the suffering that went into that. And then the hardworking farmer. Our, our, our culture is not as much farming as it used to be. Almost everybody was a farmer. We were talking about this last night as well. But, but if you've ever worked on a farm, it's hard work. But there's reward to be the first to receive his share of crops. So Paul makes the focus here for Timothy to be motivated. Hey, yes, there's suffering, but look at the reward. May this motivate you, Timothy. Hang in there. Keep investing. Keep taking the risk, in a sense, to invest your life into others. And then Jay illustrated these three real life, these three truths with real life stories from his own life, one of which is his time living among the Bukalo tribe in the Philippines. And it was something like this. Sisters eat rats and cockroaches. No, I'm kidding. But if you were here last week, he was talking about these words that sounded the same, and if you mess them up, you might say something stupid like that, right? But just the, 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 the painful time and the suffering and the, the sleepless nights of trying to learn this language so he could pass on the truth of God's word to those in the Buklo tribe. There was hard work, but there was reward. That was his point. He also shared some other ones to illustrate these same things about you know pleasing his, the one enlisted him and... and seeing the fruit of his labors. Well, we'll see from our pastors this morning that um, it, it's well worth it. It's well worth the suffering um, to entrust God's word into the lives of others who will do the same. And we're going to basically want to see, those are motivations there. We're going to see more motivations um, this morning to hang in there through the suffering for the gospel. Well, with that review, uh, uh, to help us get in the right context here, let's now turn our attention to our passage This morning I'd ask you to stand with me as we read God's word together. 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. Here we go. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to the imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Father, we ask you to take now your word and plant it deep within us. We want to listen, and we want to be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, before we dive into these three verses, let me ask you a question. What motivates you? What may it motivate you to do something hard, to fight through pain, to keep going through suffering? What is it that motivates you to do that? Uh, what keeps you going in that? Well, when I was playing college football, I, I remember my freshman year of college football, um, we, we had something called winter workouts, and I remember like after the first week of winter workouts, I, I couldn't sit down to go to the bathroom. There was so much lactic acid, so much pain some of you ever not worked out a long time, you start working out, but like multiply this by about 100, all right? And you just were, everything hurt. You could hardly walk. You just trying to get to class, and, and just it was really, really hard. And you just kind of pushed through that. And then, then that next season, I noticed I was like faster and stronger and more explosive. And playing was a lot more fun because I was having a lot more success. So the next time winter workouts came along, I, I knew I was going to be hurting. But, man, I, I was motivated to push through it because I knew what was going to happen the next fall. I was motivated because I was going to enjoy playing this game. I enjoyed the play. I was going to do better at it and have more fun. That was mo- what motivated me. Well, in, in 2007, my dad and I rode a- our bikes 500 miles across the great state of Kentucky, my old Kentucky home. All right. We, we, we dipped our back tires in the Mississippi River in Hickman, Kentucky, Hickman, Kentucky, okay, you can go ahead and laugh at Hickman, all right, yeah, there's lots of Hickmans there, all right, me too, all right, so we dipped our back, in, and, and we rode across the state of Kentucky, and at the end of that, we were going we to dip our front tires into the Ohio River in Ashland, Kentucky, where my, my, my family grew up, all right, and so 500 miles, the first day, we went 120 miles, a hundred, the farthest I had ridden on a bike before that was 80 miles, Okay, I, I was built for like short bursts. That's all I'd ever trained for my whole life. And I'd been training for this, but man, 100, 120 miles the first day, some pretty good hills. And we get to the hotel. My mom had gone before us. We met at this hotel. And we go in there. I take a shower. I lay down on the bed. And my dad didn't take a shower. He comes out, okay, son, we got to go eat. I said, I can't move. I can't get up. I'm not, I'm not done. I mean, I have nothing in the furnace to burn. There's nothing there. I'd never felt like this before. Never playing football, i felt like this. I've been tired, but I had nothing in me at all. I'd burned everything. I had to, didn't eat enough. It was a problem. And, and so I couldn't get up. My dad says, Brian, if you don't eat, we can't ride tomorrow. You won't be able to ride tomorrow. And I'll never forget this trip with my dad. We finished it. But what motivated me to get up off that bed? Because I want to do this with my dad. This is a special time for us. Um, he was in his mid-60s at the time, um, riding 500 miles. He's 81. He still rides about 120, 200 miles a week. Um, and, but I wanted to do this with my dad. That's what motivated me, I, from my love for my dad to spend time with my dad. I got off of the bed because I was motivated because I love my dad. That's why I got up. What motivates you when you come to those difficult times like that, when you feel you just can't go- keep going? You, there's suffering. There's pain involved. What motivates you? Well, how did Paul motivate Timothy to embrace the hard work and suffering that can come from making disciples who would make disciples? Well, we saw some of those in verses 3 through 7, we're going to see more this morning. So as we examine these verses this morning, we're going to see three more motivations for suffering for the gospel. And I'll just give them to you uh, right here. Remember Jesus Christ... First, motivation. Number two, rest on the power of God's word and then realize the purpose. All right? Remember Jesus Christ, rest on the power of God's word, and realize the purpose. Those are the motivations that will keep us going and keep Timothy going through the potential suffering and pain that comes through discipleship. Well, let's look at verse 8 with me, please. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. In these words, we see the first of our motivations for suffering for the gospel or making disciples. Remember Jesus Christ. Notice the word remember there. Now, I, I say this sometimes, and I know some of you shake your head. Did we? That's just, I don't know why he keeps telling us. He must have been really good in English. Actually, I made a C in freshman English. All right, I wasn't really good in English. All right, but this is a present tense verb. It's, a, it's an imperative, it's a command. It's a gentle command, I would say that here. Hey, Paul's saying, Timothy, remember, re- remember Jesus Christ. And it's present, and I would say that it's an ongoing. All right, it's an active presence. So it's it's this. It just keeps going like this. Keep remembering. Continue to remember. It's not just remember one time, Timothy. Remember, remember every day, every week, every year, actively remembering something very important. And this is what will keep you going. Remember this, Timothy. This will keep you going in this hard work of making disciples. Well, what is it that Paul tells Timothy to keep remembering? Well, you see the next two words, Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things he could remember about Jesus Christ. Go read the Gospels, lots. But, but Paul highlights a couple of things. What is it about Jesus Christ specifically here for Timothy to keep remembering, to continue to remember? First of all, risen from the dead. Risen from the dead. And th- this is another grammar, but it's important. It's in the perfect tense, And what that means, you have, in, in, in Greek, you have all these different kinds of tenses. You have past, it's an aorist tense, it's a past tense, which is something that happened in the past, but it might change. A perfect tense is a past action, completed action, with a resulting state of being. It never changes. Okay, now think about this. He says, in the perfect, risen from the dead. Jesus is risen. He will always remain risen. He rose. He's risen today. And what he's saying is we have a living king. He's not dead, and he will always live. Timothy, remember that. Remember, he's risen from the dead. He's in a state of risenness, if that's a word. That shows my English, right? All right. He, he's in this, this state of always living. The mention of the resurrection also impl- implies the truth of the crucifixion, what he did for us, and what the resurrection proved that his crucifixion, his sacrifice on our behalf, it paid. The penalty for our sin. And it also defeated sin and death. The emphasis on the resurrection would be an encouragement to Timothy that death and sin had been defeated. Christ won the victory, Timothy. That's what he's saying. He won! You're a winner, Timothy! You're on the winning team. Yes, Timothy, discipling others in the gospel truth can be hard. It can involve suffering, but remember Jesus Christ is risen. He is living. He has already won the victory. The resurrection is the validation of Jesus' payment for our sin and his victory over the sin and death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is known as the, 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 the you, for most people know, 1 Corinthians, you guys help me. Chapter 13 is the what chapter? Love chapter, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the resurrection chapter. What's 1 Corinthians 15? The Resurrection chapter. It's the resurrection chapter. It, it's Paul showing uh, the, the connection of the resurrection with the gospel message by pointing out that if there's no resurrection, listen, to what he says, if there's no resurrection, our preaching is in vain. Now, I know some of you think that's the truth already, all right? That preaching is not in vain because he did rise. If the if, if resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, our faith is in vain, our faith is worthless, and we're still in our sins. That's how important the resurrection is. There's a whole chapter, there, there's 58 verses. Dedicated to it in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, however, that Jesus has been raised. And with the resurrection comes victory over sin and death. I love this. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is gone. The power of sin is a law. law, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you might be wearing some victory shoes today. It's the Greek word Nike. All right? Yeah. The the victory right here. They stole it right here. All right? Phil Knight made a bunch of money off of God's word. All right? Although that's just a Greek word for victory. But when Timothy and, and each of us are doing the hard work of making disciples, the Lord through Paul wants us to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Remember that. Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He's living now and gives us victory. Well, not only that, but notice the second thing he wants us to remember. He's a, what does it say? He's a, oops, let me go to the, to the verse here. He's a, what, descendant of David. What in the world does that make? mean? What, what does it mean? And what difference does it make? He's a descendant of D- David. I'm a descendant of Dallas McKenzie. It's my grandfather. So? So maybe you thinking, we're talking about genealogy. Well, this is important, all right? Here Paul is pointing out that God has kept his promise that the Messiah, Jesus, would descend from David and be the eternal reigning king. He is risen from the dead, and he's the reigning king. He's the reigning king. We see this all through the Old Testament. Um, 2 Samuel uh, 7, 12 through 13, talking to David, when your days are complete and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and forever and ever and ever. And there's so many passages like this in the Old Testament speaking of the Messiah that he would be descended from David, of the seed of David, and he would be the reigning king. Jesus reigns and rules over all things. So when Timothy and each of us who are doing the hard work and making disciples right, are are struggling, Paul wants us to remember that Jesus Christ, the, the promised descendant of David, is king. And he reigns and rules over all. These two emphases of the gospel, the resurrection and the descent, being a descendant of David, David, all right, the resurrection or reigning king are emphasized by Paul in other places, uh, such as Romans 1, 3 through 4, look what it says. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, there you go, according to flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The fact that Jesus lives as the risen king and he reigns are essential parts of the gospel message that should motivate us to hang in there and do the hard and rewarding work of making disciples. That's what, that's, that's what Paul is saying to Timothy and to us. Hey, he is risen. He is the reigning king. Go get him. You're on the victory side. Now but briefly look at me. This, this last phrase in verse 8. There, I'll go back this way. It says, My gospel. Why does Paul refer to it as my gospel? Like it's, it's his own and nobody else's. That's not what he's talking about here. He, he uses this phrase two other times in the New Testament, both of them are in Romans. So he uses this phrase three times in all the New Testament. And, 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 and I don't think we make, make such a big deal about this that Paul's like, What, well, he got his own gospel now? No. He uses it. He's speaking of the good news he proclaims, the gospel entrusted to him that was entrusted to him by Jesus and was opposed to the good news the false teachers were teaching. This is my gospel, the gospel that Jesus gave to me to pass on. And he was so enraptured by it, he, it was his own. Isn't it your gospel? Isn't the good news to you personally too? Hey, we, we do this all the time in sports. I mean, I always love this, especially when somebody never went to school there or doesn't live in the city. But we, we got our teams, don't we? How many of y'all live in Kansas City? How many of y'all are Chiefs fans? How many of y'all speak of the Chiefs fans like, that's my team? That, that's my team. You don't even live in Kansas City. You never played for them? You probably never made anybody, per- anybody personal on the team, but it's, it's my team? I mean, I'm a Steelers fan. I've never been, they tore down Three River Stadium, and now they got a new Heinz Field but I'm a Cedars fan. I've never lived close to there, and I just picked them because in the '70s they beat everybody. So that became my team. That's my team. And That's really what Paul's. It's my gospel. He's taking it personally. It's my gospel, and it is opposed to the false gospels of the Kansas. City. I mean, of of of, of of of. I'm kidding. Of the false prophets. I just lost you there. I'm kidding. But I mean that. What he's saying is this is this is. Forget what I just said. All right. Not all before that, but. He's saying, this is personal, and it's true. It's true. My gospel, the good news. See, the word good news was not coined by Christians. It was a word used. It's a Greek word used, good news. There's all kinds of good news telling. But listen, in the gospel, and Paul used the word gospel more than anybody in the New Testament, it became the gospel. Because there was only one really good news. The gospel. And people understood what it was. The gospel. The gospel. Well, as we consider the truth taught in verse 8 before we move on to verse 9, the Lord wants to motivate us in view of the potential suffering that comes from making disciples, listen, to remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Everybody say that. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember that he is risen. Remember that he reigns. And Paul wants to encourage to that truth in us today and motivate us in the potential suffering that come from making disciples to hang in there, keep going. Let that be our motivation. we we'll look at what we do in verse nine. We got all kinds of stuff going. I, 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 I insulted the chiefs and now my, the, the lights don't work. I, I don't know if that's a message from God or the, the, the people back there. But hey... Verse 9, here we go. For which I suffer hardship, even in imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not in prison. It's in these words we discover our second motivation for suffering for the gospel and making disciples. Rest on the power of God's word. Look with me at that phrase, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. Paul is imprisoned as a violent criminal. This word criminal here is one that was reserved for violent criminals. Was Paul a violent criminal? No, he wasn't. But that's what they, the way he treated him, all right? But he was imprisoned as a violent criminal because he would not stop proclaiming the gospel. He also emphasized that earlier in chapter, chapter 1. However, Paul's primary point was not to highlight again his suffering and imprisonment, but to help Timothy see the contrast with his imprisonment and the gospel. That, that's why he does this, right? He just brings it up again. And with that said, look at the second half of verse 9. But... But the word of God is not imprisoned. Some of your translations say, but the word of God is not bound, is not chained, some translations say. But the word of God is not imprisoned. Yes, Paul says, I'm in prison, I'm chained, but the word of God's not chained. In other words, nothing can stop the word of God. Nothing it's, it, look, it's not imprisoned, and this is, listen, this also, I, I, I think if you all, if I keep doing this, you'll, you'll, you'll catch on and say, this is actually important. This is per, in the perfect tense, too. It's not imprisoned. So what's that mean? Will it ever be imprisoned? No. It's not imprisoned. Perfect tense, it will remain the same forever. The word of God is not imprisoned, and it never will be imprisoned. It will never be chained. It will never be bound. I would love what one man says. You can bind the messenger, but not the message. Uh, I also love the way that Martin Luther says it in his amazing hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. I'd love to just like sing this because this is an awesome hymn. Um, th- and you, you, the last thing we said, s- sang earlier, uh, "Open my eyes, it said 1976 at the bottom. Some you like, man, that was old. This brother was written in the 1500s. You think that was old. This is really old, but this is awesome. The word above all earthly powers, no thanks to hint them abideth. The spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. Let good and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. See that? The body they may kill, but his truth abideth still. Because nothing can stop the gospel. The gospel, the word of God is not imprisoned. Well, as we, we think about that, I also thought about another great illustration of this. John Bunyan, whose most famous, famous work was a, a work called Pilgrim's Progress. Thank you for the one person who may, knew that. I'm kidding. Don't raise your hand because you're going you, you, to incriminate yourself. What parent has not read Pilgrim's Progress to your children? Do not raise your hand. If you were going to raise your hand, shame on you. Buy Pilgrim's Progress in modern English and read it to your kids. If you've never read it before, as an adult, read it. It's incredible. The Pilgrim's Progress, while in prison, okay, so he wrote it while he was in prison, too, in Bedford, England, for preaching the gospel. He was in prison for preaching the gospel. For several centuries, Pilgrim's Progress was second in cells only to the Bible. Bunyan's cell window faced a high stone wall that surrounded the prison, making it impossible to see in or out of his cell. However, on many days, he would preach loud enough for his voice to be heard outside the walls, where hundreds of listeners, believers and unbelievers, gathered to hear God's word proclaimed. Nothing can stop the gospel. Nothing can stop his word and the impact of his word. And Paul earlier, in an earlier imprisonment, wrote the following to the church of Philippi. Look like what he says in Philippians 1:12 through 14. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that by circumstances, he's in prison, having turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. What that means is there were, they, they, I love this, that they actually chained one, they had, they, shifts, of these, these guards, these Praetorian guards, these were the Navy SEALs, and they had one guy chained to Paul, and they just had, guess what, he was sharing the gospel with them, and then it got back to other people in the Praetorian Guard, and by the end of Philippians, there's people in Caesar's household who are believers now, and he's in prison. Now, it gets better, and that most of the brothers and sisters trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. See, see the word of God is not imprisoned. It can't be. Well, so here in verse nine, the Lord through Paul motivates to remain motivates us to remain steadfast and do the hard and rewarding work of making disciples by telling us to rest on the power of God's word. See, nothing can stop God's word. It's like a lion. We just gotta let it loose. We just let it go. Well, let's now look at verse ten. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen so they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It's in these words we find our third motivation in this passage for suffering for the gospel and making disciples. Realize the purpose, the purpose for which he suffers. Look at those, first, those words. For this reason, some translators say, therefore, or this is why. All right, Based on the fact that Jesus lives and reigns and the word of God is not bound, Paul endures all things. Endures his word. Endures endure means to, to to bear up under a patient, steadfastness, and it's in the present tense, just to keep on enduring all things, including suffering. He says, "For whom does Paul endure all things?" What does it say? For the We want you all to respond here. What does it say? For the sake of those who are. Three people said it. For the sake of those who are, chosen, and some some translations for the sake of the elect. This phrase just made a bunch of you uncomfortable, and you're squirming a little bit. I can tell right now. I, I know. Guaranteed. Because every time this word comes up, people get a little uncomfortable. I wish we would get more uncomfortable with some other things in the Bible than this. All right? And, but but the, we, we don't have time to unpack all the implications or nuances of this, comf- con, th- th- this concept, chosen or election or predestination. There's a nice word. But they're all in the Bible. You have to believe in them because they're there. And we can talk about what they mean, but you can't say, I don't, you know, I don't, I hear people, I don't believe in being chosen or elect or predestination. Well, then you must not believe your Bible because it uses the words. Now, we have to wrestle with them, trying to understand them, but we got to, we got to say, yeah, they're there. All right. I don't have time to go on all those things. In fact, we don't have time in this lifetime to go into all that 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 may involve. All right. And I don't think that the Lord, through Paul, wanted Timothy to get bogged down in this truth either. I don't think Timothy goes, oh man, chosen or elect. Man, I'm going to have to spend about, 30 years kind of talk, thinking about this before I keep this disciple making stuff up. That's not what he was thinking. But we get all bogged down and get all mad somebody used that word or, did, or somebody didn't use that word. We get all confused and that's not what Paul used this. But, but I will say this that God's word clearly teaches the sovereignty of God and salvation, that, sov- that salvation is a work of God. It's a work of God meaning that before the foundation of the world, God chose in Christ and predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters of him, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. All right, not, that's, that's true. It's what the Bible teaches, clearly. But the Bible also clearly teaches the responsibility of mankind, meaning we must place our faith in Jesus to realize the salvation he purchased on our behalf. It's there. These two truths, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man in salvation, All right, are taught throughout God's word, and they produce tension. I can already feel the tension right now in the room. I I can cut it like a knife. But it's not a tension with God. It's a tension with us. We struggle with it because, let's be honest, we're in the Western Hemisphere. We're smart. And every, I mean, you know, if, if A equals B and B equals C, then therefore A must equal C. I mean, it's just how it is. Always, right? We, we want to we have an answer to everything. And I'm telling you, some of the answers that, first of all, some of the answers the Bible gives us to the questions we ask we don't like. And some of the answers the Bible gives us to, to questions we don't get. <laughs> and then sometimes it doesn't even answer the question because we couldn't get it. Go read Romans 9 about this. And that's basically, it was a great chance for Paul to answer all the questions about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man and salvation and how that all works together. But he doesn't. He just keeps going. Hey, Paul, man, you just blew it. You, you missed your chance. But both of these are, these are twin truths, all right? And many, when confronted about the truth of God's sovereignty of salvation, wrongly say things like, well, if that's true, then we don't have to tell anybody the good news. And that's not what the Bible teaches, though. Just because our logic can't wrap our head around something doesn't make it, un, doesn't make it untrue. Think about this, I, I, and you'll have to agree with me, the Trinity. Can somebody just stand up and explain to me all the nuances of the Trinity right now, with nobody having questions after it? No. This is talking about who God is, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whoa. And the more you study it, the more you go, Whoa. And that's what it's meant to get, for us to do is go, whoa, he is awesome. And when we see these things like chosen election, we should just be, God is awesome. I, I can't get all of it, but he is awesome. That's what our response should be, not, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, that, well, that, well it, remember, he also says we've got to believe. Hey, uh, this might help you a little bit. Um, and believe me, you think I'm really going into this. I'm not even touching the surface of this, all right? It's like this. You ever been uh, going to go on a long trip like we did, and you get a, pa- a, a suitcase, and you're, you're getting stuff in, in the suitcase, especially when I was a kid. Maybe as an adult, you do this, and you're getting stuff in the suitcase, and, you, and it's so full that you've got to kind of lay on top of it. You ever been, have to do that? And the old latches, get them. And you stand up, and there's a shirt hanging out the side. So you unlatch it like that, and you stuff that shirt in. You lay it on again, you just latch it. Oh, and there's a shirt laying on this side now. And you keep doing it, and there's a sock. And there's, it just keeps hanging out. You can't get it all in. You can't contain it all in the suitcase. And that's, I'm just telling you, that's what, I, when I think about this, this idea of God's sovereignty and um, our responsibility and how that all works together, there's always a sock sticking out. Does that help? There is. There, there, there is. And so don't be upset if there's this sock hanging out and say, God, you're awesome, whatever all this means. All right? Keep studying it so you know his heart more, but don't let it slow you down. Don't. And, and, and I heard a guy say this too. I love this. If you're upset with the word election in Scripture, which is all over the place, just give people and, you, and, and, and you're like, who are the elect? Who, who are the elect? Well, just give them the election test. Share the gospel. When they respond to the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ, they're elect. Just give them the election test. That, that's how you do it. All right? So let, let's move on, and, and I know I'm ruffling some feathers, but We'll smooth them back out here, okay? Why does Paul endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen? Notice the words there. It says, so that. Here's a purpose statement. So that. Notice what the rest of the verse says. They also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Paul's motivation here to to, to share the gospel, to keep making disciples in spite of the suffering is because he knows that there are people out there who will believe. And he wants to make sure that they'll hear the gospel so they can believe. Because they can't believe unless they have a preacher, Romans says. Here we go. This, this whole responsibility of God, responsibility of man, sovereignty of God, whole thing, they got to hear it. So he says, I want to make sure they hear it so they can experience the salvation and eternal glory that is promised to them salvation from the penalty of sin, salvation from the power of sin, and ultimately the salvation from the presence of sin. Paul knows that there's people out there and his, mo- his, his purpose, his motivation in discipleship is that others may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with eternal glory. This motivates Paul to endure the suffering that comes from being committed to discipleship. And it should motivate Timothy and should motiv- motivate us as well. So here in verse 10, the Lord through Paul motivates us to remain steadfast and do the hard and rewarding work of making disciples by telling us to realize the purpose. If that's the purpose, that people can experience this salvation that God promises those who believe, shouldn't that motivate us to go out and share it with people and disciple people so they can understand it fully in their life? That's what he's trying to do. Well, here's the question I, I love to ask, so what? So what, big deal, all that stuff here in 2 Timothy, so what difference does that make? Well, Paul has continued his motivation to Timothy and us to suffer for the gospel and to do the hard work and rewarding work of making disciples by giving us three motivations here remember Jesus Christ rest on the power of God's word and realize the purpose so let these be our motivations when it comes to doing discipleship and in light of the fact that we're all going to allow the that we're we're all going to allow the Lord to use it just to to these things that motivate us and move us in the right direction, disciple making, let me ask this question I asked earlier. Who are you meeting with? If you're not meeting with somebody, then you're not making disciples. You, you can't do it without meeting with someone. Who are you meeting with? And, and I hope, and, and, and listen, when I was at that church, it wasn't like, hey, Jason Whittle, who you meeting with? You better tell me right now. You're a bad Christian. Ugh. All right, that's not the attitude. It was like, hey, who you meeting with? Who you? I want to hear what you're what you're learning and who you meeting with. It was an encouraging thing. It wasn't this stand over somebody kind of attitude. Not at all. Well, to help visualize this, I'm going to end with this. We can how this, what this looks like. What can happen when we're committed to the process of discipleship? Let me share with you about a man named Dawson Trotman. Many of you know him, founder of the Navigators Ministry. Listen, spiritual multiplication can be seen in the story of Dawson Trotman and Les Spencer, a Navy man on the USS West Virginia. After Trotman had been teaching Spencer truths from God's word for some time, Spencer brought a friend from his ship to Trotman and said, Dawson, I want you to teach him all that you taught me. But Dawson said, I'm not going to teach him. You're going to teach him. If you can't teach him what I've taught you, then I've failed. Spencer's friend eventually found someone else who needed to be taught, and the process continued until on that one ship there were 125 men meeting every week for prayer and Bible study. Those men then went on to other ships and bases until at the height of World War II, there were groups of believers started by these men on over 1,000 ships and naval bases all over the world. The story doesn't stop there. The discipleship happening on these boats were literally transforming the atmosphere of the ships. Now, these are Navy guys, all right? Eventually, the FBI was brought in to investigate. The suspicion was that some type of cult had emerged. The main tip-off for the investigation was these sailors were not engaging in normal sailor-like, ta- sailor-type activities, if you know what I mean. And as they did their investigation, it took them six months to weave through all the stories and all the suspects to get to Dawson Trotman. Six months, the FBI. So many people were involved, it was hard to see who the ringleader was. When agents went to one person and asked how the group got started, they would reply, I don't know, I met with someone on another ship who started a group. So the FBI agents went to that person with this, this, th- their questions, only to be referred to another person on another ship. And on and on and on and on it went for six months until they finally were able to trace the whole thing back to Dawson Troutman. That's what could happen if we were committed to this idea of disciple making and allowing these truths, these motivations to motivate us. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Rely on. On God's word and realize the purpose may those be the things that motivate us to take the gospel to the world and disciple people who will take that truth to other people who will take that truth to other people and my prayers this morning if you haven't started that journey that you would realize that the God of all the universe loves you so much that although you're sinful and you've rejected him and everything about him and your sin deserves death. It deserves the judgment of God. He loved you so much he sent Jesus to take your punishment for you. And if you would turn and from trusting in yourself to make yourself right with God and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be made right with God and you will begin this amazing, exciting journey of walking with Jesus and walking with others with Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for our time and your word. Thank you for this amazing adventure, we get to join in with you, that you use us to accomplish your purposes, or you use us to, to take the truth and invest it in somebody else, who can invest in somebody else and invest in somebody else, so much so, Lord, that it can only be explained by you. Lord, that's what we want to do. That's what we want our lives to be about, Lord. Empower us to do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm gonna have you stand with me and remind you that we have prayer teams on both sides uh, down here of uh, um in the auditorium over on this side and here. If you want to pray with somebody, ask questions, um, uh, talk about who you're meeting with or finding somebody to meet with, whatever it might be, we have those people down th- there with you. But this is, more, this is my prayer for each of you this morning. And just, just take this as my prayer for you this morning. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. You're dismissed.